Welcome to the Jax Jones and Martin Warner Show. I've been uh, following this amazing Instagram account called the Texas Beekeeper. She's amazing. So she goes around Texas getting hives, beehives out of like inconvenient situations. So you might be in your house and you've got this huge hive and she right. relocates the hive. But it's therapeutic to watch her do it, but also incredibly scary because she does it with no protection. She just, wow. she says, yeah, so she's like... I'm able to handle the bees because I'm no threat to the bees. And then she t lifts them out in scoops and chucks them into this other hive, takes out the honey. And then she starts talking about how, um, you know, the bees communicate where uh, honey lives outside of the area. So apparently the ways bee, uh, a bee will tell another bee that there's honey X amount of distance away is it wiggles its bum at high frequencies. And then it walks in a line and that's the direction that the honey is. And then the distance it walks is how far the honey is. Super interesting. They're all like listening, intrigued at what's going on. And then they've got the queen bee. And I didn't know this. You could relocate a one queen from to another hive. Right, they right. come flat packed in jiffy bags. You know, like those bags that you pop, yeah, like yeah. jiffy bag, right? It comes in a clip and you can put it in the hive. Now, here's the gauntlet of truth, right? The bee can get rejected. The queen can get rejected from or accepted. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if it's ex uh, rejected, it gets killed on sight. But if it's accepted... The queen is huddled around and everyone loves her. Wow. Texas beekeeper, bro. Wow. Wow. Anyway, um, that, that, no, that's. Are you taking the piss? No, a great conversation. Um, very insightful. And, I, and I'm, I'm a lover of bees and um, I'm a lover of queens. Um, but, but, but let's move on. I want to tell you a story about, about international relations. Right. Because today is all about how all the countries connect together. Can't right. they just all get along? Why well, can't they all just get no, along? No, no, dude, that would be boring today. Why can't countries just get along? That's what I want to ask Cedric Layton today. Colonel Cedric Layton is just chill, bro. Why can't the countries just get along? Yeah, I was going to say, take a cigar, relax, take a back seat. Let's yeah. see if humanity can solve their own problems without yeah. government, That's what I'm right? Saying. without spies. That's what I'm right? saying. Well, let's find out. It's uh, going to be a great conversation. Well, I can't wait. This is actually a very, on, on a serious note, this is a really serious conversation. And most people don't understand, understand the world of, of, of international relations. And hopefully today, we can demystify it for ourselves and the listener will enjoy it. Listen, mate, as I was researching, if I'm being honest with you, I was just left a bit scared for the world in 20 years' time where everyone's fighting for power and resources and it's all about the distribution and the, the legacy of leaders and then I'm just thinking about my daughter in 30 years time. What's the world that she's going to live in when they, they, these people on their personal quest for power, basically? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 am, I, I, think it's, I think you have to be wary about it. And you also have to trust in the political system, right? Because ultimately, we've got a government that's there to defend us as well as pr provide, you know, the kind of regulation for prosperity, right? Mm. For, for us to live together. But I, I'd, be, I'd be honest with you, I'm a hedger. I hedge everything, right? Is that why you live between the UK and America? Well, that, that, that's, that's what I call tactical hedge. My strategic <laughs> hedge is short of having a nuclear reactor, I'm going to have a nuclear bunker. But a nuclear bunker is not any good on its own. What you need is to divest your income and buy an island and then put mm. the nuclear bunker in an island, Ooh. okay? And now you're sorted. Now you don't need any weaponry. You just go under the underground. What, what is in your pact in the nuclear bunker? If, it, if, if shit hits the fan, what you take into your bunker? Bacon sandwich and an Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> Jack 
Jax Jones is an internationally renowned artist, music producer and DJ, having sold over 40 million records across pop, house and dance genres, as well as receiving multiple Grammy, Brit and Ivor Novello nominations for his work. Martin Warner is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, educator, investor and film producer. Among his accomplishments, Martin achieved the holy grail exit of $50 million in a record 17 months. He was the first British pioneer to enter the race to build an electric air taxi. He also co-invented full-colour 3D desktop printing. He holds over 120 patents for his innovations. The podcast era has a leading co-anchored show. Jax Jones and myself, Martin Warner, deliver an intellectually curious, cross-cultural, insight-focused conversations for you, the listener. The show is joined by special guests who have achieved excellence in their profession on subjects that matter across life, business and art. Jax and myself aim to unlock the secrets, tips and insights behind the subjects they explore. Prepare to learn, laugh and love the unlikely chemistry of best friends in this unique podcast. On today's show, we are talking about how politicians' quest for power and the future of international relations and democracy affects you with Colonel Cedric Layton. Cedric spent 26 years climbing the ranks as an intelligence officer in the US Air Force. He held numerous senior roles at the Pentagon, including Deputy Director of Warfare Support and Intelligence Integration. In his time, he's witnessed the fall of the Berlin Wall, built diplomatic relations in tensious parts of Southeast Asia, and has been on five tours in the Middle East. He now consults multinational businesses on geopolitics, leadership, and cybersecurity, as well as being a common media commentator on military and international affairs. Just out of interest, is it difficult to work in such a classified position and then lead a, a life outside of that? It, it is. Um, it, that's a really good question because when I was in the military, I was actually never on social media. Now, of course, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, uh, you know, uh, LinkedIn and all of those things, uh, they started to exist and they started to uh, develop, uh, you know, their own momentum, you know, within their their respective categories. Uh, but because of the work that I did, uh, I was I was not on them. I only I got on those platforms after uh, retiring from the Air Force when I thought I could uh, uh, share more of myself, uh, you know, with a greater audience. And uh, then, of course, you know, going into the media is a completely different world uh, than a world in which you you're working with classified information all the time uh, so all of a sudden you know if you're talking to a a reporter now that's normal for me i uh, in the past it would have been something where uh, you know, you had to inform, uh, you know, the, the security office, oh, yeah, by the way, I bumped into the CNN correspondent today. Uh, and of course, if I did that, did that now, uh, I'd be talking all the time <laughs> to a security officer. But, but uh, that's, uh, you know, there's a difference there. And of course, you have a responsibility to protect the information that you're entrusted with. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, being in an, an armed force in a democracy or a member of an armed force in a democracy, it's important to tell people what you can about what you're uh, you know what you're doing uh, th that's the difference so yeah I've, I've seen a really big difference in my life uh, you know uh, my military life and my post-military life are are vastly different lives most uh, people when they retire from the US military they will end up in a uh, you know sometimes they end up in consulting roles uh, oftentimes they end up working for defense contractors and that seems to be a natural 
progression. So you end up with, you know, I'll, I'll just pick one at random, Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman, uh, you know, one of those. And uh, a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues from the military have, have gone that route. Uh, in some cases, you have people that, uh, you know, do something in uniform and then they show up the next day doing the same thing, but wearing civ civilian clothes. Uh, but then on the other side of what I do, uh, the more traditional consulting uh, piece, I established a firm uh, that I call Cedric Layton Associates, and it has a subsidiary, uh, Cedric Layton International Strategies. And uh, that's uh, where I started my uh, consulting work, uh, prim primarily in strategic risk with an emphasis on cyber risk. And uh, there I was taking what I learned from my uh, intelligence career uh, in the U.S. Air Force and uh, my other experiences and uh, provide advice to uh, uh, to organizations of various types on strategic risk, uh, you know, throughout the world, and that's that's what I do in my my spare time. So, cyber risk would be like hacking risks and stuff like that. Yeah, to exactly, and so uh, I now have a partner, and we have a firm called Cyforex, and we deal specifically. Uh, with hacking risk, uh, we deal with uh, cyber defenses. Uh, we work with firms both on the uh, provider side, if you will, as well as uh, do our own research. Uh, and that research uh, deals with, you know, where is the threat coming from, who's involved, uh, you know, what are they doing, and who's at risk. And those are the uh, the areas that we uh, that we actually deal in. Yes, I've I've got to know um, because when you talk about hacking. I imagine um, just some person in a bunker somewhere and trying to garner some information and but purely either for some sort of like um, anarchic gain right or like to anti-establishment or something like that uh, obviously hacking operates operates on international government level people trying to get stuff and I just wonder like what is it they're trying to achieve by getting that information you know, on those kind of risks, if you know what I'm saying, from from like, what is it they're trying to achieve? Is it to, to get one up on the competition? Like, what is that? Yeah, it, well, that, that's one part, Jax, exactly. So uh, let's take an example uh, that relates to the defense industry. The design for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter uh, was compromised uh, because it was uh, the, the defense contractors had... Uh, you know, of course, all the intellectual property, all the designs on their, uh, you know, on their websites, uh, well, you know, buried within their emails and within their IT networks. Uh, but hackers from China were able to find exactly uh, where all that intellectual property uh, was stored on their networks. And they were able to steal that information uh, and electronically download it, uh, just like you would download an application. And they were able to take that uh, and then develop uh, the J-20 uh, Chinese fighter as a result of the hack of the F-35 uh, designs. Wow. Uh, so that's just one example. Uh, so there are several things that people are trying to do from a hacking perspective. One of the things that they do is, you know, like I described, they try to get intellectual uh, property. And, uh, that also applies to the commercial world uh, and even in the music world. Uh, you know, so yeah, you yeah. Know, in, in your world, um, there have been incidents where, and I guess the closest one that most people know about would be the North Korean hack of uh, Sony Pictures, uh, because they didn't like the movie The Interview. Uh, North Korea didn't I like remember that, that movie for obvious reasons. And so this was, uh, this kind of morphed from 
I'm going to steal your intellectual property to I'm going to take embarrassing information, you know, what you talk about, uh, you know, when you're talking about the various uh, actors and actresses that are appearing in your movies to how much they get paid, uh, you know, how much all the executives get paid, all of that stuff. Uh, was publicized by North Korean hackers in an attempt to uh, keep the interview off uh, the, the cinema circuit. And uh, so there are uh, economic reasons for hacking. Uh, there are political reasons for hacking. Um, there are different uh, sociocultural efforts that are going on, you know, where people are trying to influence people. Uh, so it becomes not just a battle of grabbing data and exploiting that data, but it also becomes a battle of changing minds or at least convincing people uh, to do things mm -hmm. in a certain way or not do things in a certain way. So it's a very, it's a very complex uh, situation. But, uh, you know, if you take North Korea as an example, North Korea has uh, in many ways perfected the art of hacking for economic gain. It's a perfect way for them, well, semi-perfect way for them to evade sanctions. Um, they've stolen money. Uh, you know, you may be familiar with the SWIFT uh, money transfer system that goes between mm -hmm, countries, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so they were able to hack. They were able to hack into that system uh, using uh, bad, you know, exploiting bad practices uh, at the central bank of Bangladesh. Uh, and you know, you think, okay, what does North Korea have to do with Bangladesh? It's all a matter of vulnerabilities. And they knew that the Bangladeshis were transferring a large sum of money. Uh, to banks in Europe, and so they took that uh, knowledge and uh, transferred money, not uh, you know, exploited the money transfer system, so that instead of going to banks in Europe, uh, the money went uh, to banks that the North Koreans could access, and then they could gain uh, money. So they uh, they were caught uh, by the time they downloaded about eighty one million dollars worth of uh, you know worth of foreign exchange. Um, they were working toward. Uh, stealing one billion dollars i they didn't get quite get there but you know 81 million is not a bad haul in a you know for a day's work so so that's that's why they do it there's, there's that's money a serious there. there's threat money there, this is serious work we're talking about wow this is you say that but at a nation's level right at a country level i mean that that's that's petty money right for for these guys but but it's what they're doing like you said it's what they do beyond it um, so they're going to take down an industry if, just because you you introduced hacking, Jack. So we might as well stay on it for a minute. And and you, Cedric, gave some level of a taxonomy. I just want to be clear: when we think of cyber terrorism or cyber attacks, so I think more broadly it would be cyber attack. I understand the intellectual property. So the idea is just going and filch some information, grab what you can about about anything, whether it be a fighter jet, etc. I'm, I'm assuming the other one is to propagate information. So to particularly digitally is to push information out the dissemination, fake news, whatever, is to clutter the airwaves with, with you know, confuse people with, with information. So you gave an example of uh, North Korea. And the third one is, as I understand traditional hacking, and it's not just military it's to get access in order to be destructive, Trojan you know, viruses, all the other mm. malware, in order to basically halt people's progress and create confusion. And sometimes that's economic you know, your disruption. Is there a better way or are there other things that you would describe under kind of this cyber security area or arena? So as far as 
better way, Martin. Let's see. The the best way to describe it, I think, is the the taxonomy that you, uh, you used here, and and it's uh, it's really good to say. Uh, you know, there's the nation state uh, aspect to it. Uh, there's the uh, criminal gang aspect to it. You, you we're talking about ransomware, and uh, you know, the ability to uh, go in and lock people's files up and sure. demand a ransom from them. Uh, that affects both governments and uh, companies as well as private individuals. And then you have, uh, you know, from a purely destructive standpoint, uh, that more anarchic thing that you and Jax have talked about, where uh, hacking basically started that was kind of the infancy of hacking yeah. with you know a few exceptions historically but but generally speaking you know people would uh, uh, work individually uh, and then they started developing a collective and the most famous of those collectives would probably be anonymous uh, and we don't hear very yeah, much sure. about yeah. anonymous Not right lately. Now, but uh, in in real life they're actually quite active and in some respects uh they are they have become i almost want to say responsible more responsible uh citizens of the global internet I, I, yeah, uh, in some yeah. in some ways they're policing things uh yeah. and they're looking for disinformation uh they're looking for uh, you know the the famous case, you know, with the uh, Russian inter, uh, inter, what they called the Internet Research Agency, which right. was uh, so mm. important in the whole disinformation campaigns leading up to the U.S. twenty sixteen uh, presidential election, sure. plus also the Brexit vote in the U.K. Yep, uh, yeah. and, and that you know those are just two examples of uh, what the Internet Research Agency and similar entities were able to do from a disinformation perspective. So uh, yeah, it's uh, you know part of it is. Um, steal the data another part of it is manipulate the data and a third part is in take what you've got what you understand and uh, what we would call flood the zone uh, in other words you're providing so much information yeah. Yeah. some of it is true some of it is half true and some of yeah. it is completely false and you know it uses the old propaganda maxim of the bigger the lie the more people will believe it uh, that is kind of how they're operating they start small mm -hmm. i tell you you know that some things, you know, some things that are basically true. Yes, there are risks associated with, let's say, taking the vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, but then they amplify those risks, and then the the anti-vaxxers get a hold of it in this particular case, and then uh, the message kind of self-amplifies itself. It almost absolutely it, you know, it's like a real, like a real virus, it right? Take, well, it takes it, it, it take it, the, the 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 news cycle sucks all the air out. The, it becomes bigger and bigger and more confusing. It becomes a cloud. Yes, and that's that's the thing. Yeah, when you look at the, you know those uh, those diagrams that people use now with a cloud of uh, you know different uh, words, you know you go through the word search, and this is the most prominent word, and then the next word is uh, you know slightly less prominent, and that is absolutely what's happening. And this information cloud that we inhabit right now has become very difficult for a lot of people to navigate. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. people who are, you know, who at least think they are well-educated, uh, it's easy to get duped. Uh, and it's easy to uh, misunderstand, especially some of the more arcane things that uh, we have to deal with in our lives now. So, you know, we've all become somewhat amateur virologists at this point, you know, looking at, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, how well I deal it's with so COVID-19 on a personal basis. I've just been noticing, because what I've enjoyed if there's anything to enjoy about the pandemic is this global uh union of us going through a, the same thing at the same time which is so rare right and then you just observe human reaction throughout the whole thing and just the internet as just 
is just such a hot pot for extreme viewpoints. And then, uh, as you say, f- uh, created by these articles and I guess misinformation, and it just catches fire and then it becomes rampant. And next thing you know, they're real world things where 30,000 people are, are protesting against something they li- know very little about. That's, that's right. That's exactly right, Jax. And, and you know, the thing that, that is, uh, you know, the, the good thing is that we have the Internet and that we can do things like this podcast uh, and we have the capability to spread, uh, you know, our version of what we know to be true. Uh, but we also have to remember that other people have the capability to uh, spread disinformation just as easily and, in fact, more easily uh, than, than what we can do. And... Part of the reason is there seems to be a human proclivity on a psychological level for more sensational information. The uh, more sensational, sure. the better. You know, yep. and, and you look at that and you say, okay, uh, wow, did uh, you know Prince? I don't know Prince Andrew actually do this? Uh, and you, know, you start believing things uh, like that. They may or may not be true, but the you know when you talk about uh, Jax, you mentioned uh, you know the, that we're going through this on a, a global level and that there is a certain beauty in that there is uh, because we can uh, you know just this morning i was communicating with people uh, you know from uh, places as diverse as bolivia and korea about uh, the covid-19 vaccine rollouts in their in their respective countries and uh, the, it just happened to be people that i that i know and that i've worked with before um, but that's a really beautiful thing the problem is is the beauty of the internet uh, can also be manipulated for for very bad things and in a democracy it becomes extremely important that the truth prevail as much as possible uh, yes, it's you know it's it's fun to uh, you know to do the gossip thing. It's fun to uh, you know to understand or to uh, you know kind of uh, you know watch the accident as it happens, so to speak. You know when it comes to sensational stories, uh, but I, there's a certain responsibility there, and you know with this wonderful connectivity, there's also this great responsibility that we have, and that's that's really where. I've become so important to come back with this information that's out there and just tell people the truth, whatever whatever it happens to be. It may not even benefit you personally. It may be detrimental to you know your economic well-being for whatever reason. But uh, the mm-hmm. truth is far more important than uh, you know spreading disinformation. I found that um, having gone through the last four years, I feel like one particular aspect of this propagation or the proliferation of information in order to confuse people or suck the air out of a bigger bubble and no one really knows what they're in. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's manifested itself in a lot of things in the US, not least of all casual representations that lead to a charge on, you know, on, on government buildings, right? Um, <sighs> is it fair to say that Republican politics, particularly Trumpism as it was, it kind of entered into the kind of full, um, they really swallowed the kind of the rule book or, or, or this modern day rule book of trying to put out, you know, disinformation and, and confuse where necessary when there was genuinely just a, a cock up, you know, just just didn't handle well or something that was taken too emotionally or egos got in the way, often Trump. And all of a sudden we get a news cycle about rubbish. I read somewhere that Trump became the uh, reintroduced whataboutisms, 
which is yes, where he's yes. like deflecting information and he was great at it. He was. He was actually, you know, you'd have to say, uh, you know, no matter where you stand politically, he was actually a genius at that kind of stuff. Yeah, modern uh, day rule book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing that's, that's interesting about this is truly is that, uh, you know, Martin, from the the perspective of the Republican Party, uh, the party of the 1980s, you know, with uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and, uh, you know, and even before that with, uh, you know, more, uh, let's call it a more gentlemanly approach to politics, uh, that party does not exist anymore except in very, very small Agreed. pockets. And yes. this, uh, people may be familiar with the term Rockefeller Republican, that was something from the 60s and 70s where uh, people were mm-hmm. fairly liberal on social issues, but they wanted a strong national defense and, uh, you know, it were, you know, economically sound policies, kind of business friendly, but with a, you know, with a social uh, conscience. Yep. And that, um, that kind of Republican you don't find really. And that's, that's a very difficult, uh, you know, difficult area, I think, for the U.S., because what we might go into here in the United States is, uh, you know, a party of uh, the reasonable ones and a party of the irrational ones. And that would be really detrimental to democracy. You want a reasonable conservative party. You want a reasonable liberal, sure. uh, yep. you know, party in order to achieve that compromise, because the perspectives are invaluable to each other and that's uh, and unfortunately it's become uh you're from that party therefore you're my enemy and that's that, that's just not how you can uh, how you should run a country or or you know a, a political system you almost have to call it a weaponization of uh, uh you know of of the information cycle i uh, and i guess we have to call it a disinformation cycle in many yeah, in many yeah I, I think of uh, i think of a two-party uh system so you know for the most part we might have a third party here in the uk but for the most part it's all it's been two parties is it's really a venn diagram right i mean in the center of politics there's stuff that we if we have to agree on and then there's stuff that sits just left and right of the middle but if we get extremism we have fundamentally problems nationally and then ultimately you know globally um and it is uh, and and not that i'm I guess I relate to uh, older republicanism than, than, than the Republican Party today, um, but but I hope that they find their feet because it's going to make for a more healthy America and a better. Oh, uh, so, uh, yeah, for, yeah. Pol- getting policy through, even though obviously there's a swing vote with with, with Kamala. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, there needs to be a co- there needs to be an identity again that's somewhat in the middle. That, that leans with that Venn diagram to say, yes, this is Republican. Here are the issues. Here are the things we can agree on. Mm-hmm. Right now, I feel like that needs to be reinvented again. It needs a new identity. Oh, it, it needs a new identity. It needs new leadership. And the current leadership in the Republican Party, with a few exceptions, I, they, it's just not there. They believe that uh, they, in essence, have to kiss the ring of Donald Trump. Uh, that they have to do the things that uh, he asks them or demands that they do, and uh, those things, uh, you know, may not be uh, congruent with uh, the Constitution of the United States or the system that we've established up to this point. And and that, uh, you know, like you mentioned, that's a, that's dangerous territory to be. Yeah, in, let frankly. me let me spin it around before we get to kind of defining the global landscape and trying to put a priority on what we think the issues are. Uh, perhaps you, if you don't mind, I could challenge you um, constructively to say, why should the everyday person care about, uh, I guess, uh, uh, politics, but more importantly, just international relations? Like our, other than the fact of 
you know, culture and the fact that, you know, tourism and the fact that we meet people on our travels that are from different places, but why should they care about the big global issues? How would you frame that to, to, to my kids, to your kids? Right. So I think, Martin, the, the big thing about international relations is it's really uh, the study of uh, human interaction at the macro level. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, if your country's, uh, you know, it's a country that you're a, a, a citizen of, uh, has bad relationships with other countries, there are a lot of things that you can't do. Uh, for example, you know, let's go back a couple hundred years and look at the relationship between Britain and France. I, in the 1750s, uh, you would have never uh, had uh, trade relations at any meaningful level between Britain and France because they were mortal enemies. Uh, they fought wars. Uh, you know, if France had won the Seven Years' War, I would be speaking to you in French, and we would have a no very question. different, yeah. <laughs> very different conversation, right? Yeah. And you might not even be, in, you know, where you are right yeah. now. Yeah. So yeah. these—that's—that's that's the kind of thing that matters, uh, you know. In in the, you know, for us, you know, in the past, uh, you know, some of the conflicts were uh, religious based, uh, but the religion was often a mask or a cloaking. Uh, for the state, uh, so uh, you know, the, you know, in places where uh, you know you had uh, predominance of, let's say, the Catholic religion, uh, they would fight the Protestants, and it's not just Northern Ireland, but it's you know what happened in Europe, you know, during the Thirty Years' War back in the 1600s. Uh, so international relations, if it goes really bad, uh, you know, if we don't do the right job as a diplomat and establish those relationships with other countries. You will have a mess on your hands, and it could be as, as bad a mess as having a war. In essence, a war is the failure to achieve diplomatic solutions to international problems. Don't our leaders just operate from a place of trying to be harmonious? Like, ultimately, if why isn't everyone just looking for a harmonious relationship? Because I think that's how we get the best out of everything. And then... And then when it you mentioned war, and then when if it does come down to that, isn't it then just the fault of the people at the top, and then we just all suffer? Oh, it, it can it. absolutely be that, Jax, because you know, let, let's take the run up to World War One. You know, a little over a hundred years ago, uh, they, you know, you had a system, a political and economic system that existed that was really quite akin to the globalization. Uh, that we experienced up until, you know, the, the last few years, uh, you know, the pandemic and Trumpism being, uh, you know, factors that have diminished some some parts of globalization. Uh, but when you look at what happened about 100 years ago, uh, you see a robust uh, business uh, culture between different countries. Uh, there, of course, was a, a large element of, uh, you know, national nationalism uh, that uh, interfered with some of these things, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, you know, for example, I, I just learned, uh, you know, as I was studying some of this, uh, that uh, you could uh, buy stock, let's say you lived in Berlin, you could buy stock in Paris or London or New York uh, in 1912, just because of the use of the telegraph, and you could do it directly. Um, those capital movements were actually banned. Uh, well, in World War One, they closed most of the stock exchanges, but uh, even afterwards, they banned the movement of capital from one country to the other, and it was much harder, you know, to achieve that level of harmony. Uh, but you know, taking that as as one element of you know where we should be versus where we are, 
leaders, I, there's a lot of interpersonal chemistry that becomes really important when um, leaders meet uh, for a summit meeting. So that's why the press pays a lot of attention to, uh, you know, when a, a U.S. president or a British prime minister meet with, let's say, the head of, of Russia or the head of China, uh, or even uh, when they meet with allies, mm -hmm. because those interpersonal relationships can color uh, the relationships that uh, that develop at a lower level. Uh, so it became really important, you know, if you go back to the 1980s, uh, to see how Reagan and Gorbachev actually got along. Now, their wives didn't get along. Uh, luckily, they weren't in charge of uh, foreign policy, uh, but uh, the, the principles themselves, Gorbachev and Reagan, got along at a personal level. And that, I think, made a big difference in how the Cold War was uh, was handled, especially the end of the Cold War. And uh, that... that uh, I can't believe that that affects all of us to that extent. Yes. That, like, yeah, that's, absolutely. That change the world. <laughs> sure. Yeah, if, if you and I, let's say, you know, you were a world leader of country A and I'm a world leader of country B, and for some reason, uh, you know, I perceived a slight uh, and I didn't get along with you, that could have significant consequences, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of how we, uh, you know, whether or not we achieved an agreement on trade. If we don't achieve an agreement on trade, then, uh, you know, the, perhaps if we share a border, there's a military conflict and, that I don't make the effort to really solve it uh, because I, you know, got PO'd uh, and it goes on and on. So there are there are absolute problems like that. And that becomes really important. So, yeah, the interpersonal dynamic is important, but also financial uh, incentives become important. Uh, if a country is bent on dominating the world, uh, then by that the very nature of their desire they are going to come into conflict with other countries and that's where uh the danger points the flash points uh, you know come to the fore because the, the leaders may get along well uh but if they represent different interests that could also have a major impact on mm. whether or not uh there's a, a trade agreement versus a, a, a you know, a, a shooting conflict or a skirmish of one type or another, which could then morph into something much more dangerous. Uh, so there are, there are a lot of different factors, but uh, the interpersonal factor is important, plus uh, the perceived national interests of a country. And then, of course, what are the country's goals? Are they, you know, are they trying to uh, break out and assume more power, a greater role in the world? Or are they okay with the status quo? If they're not okay with the status quo, uh, that's where the danger signs start uh, start coming into play. This is a great um, segue into, like, as a military expert and and particularly uh, analysing what I would consider geopolitics or the geopolitical landscape. Like, you've 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 leaned on what are the behaviours of a nation or their political leaders, but what are the major global issues today? And then we'll talk a bit more about, obviously, China. Russia. Uh, I think Afghanistan's extremely topical right now, especially with you know, Biden's promise to remove the troops and everything. But can we start with just like what you think the, the big global issues are that, that, that are, and they may be on that threat assessment, but. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I think there's going to be some similarities with the threat assessment. And uh, what I'll say is, um, I think climate is a very huge transnational or global issue water as a natural resource uh, that becomes a huge issue and has been it's kind of a hidden issue in in many cases uh for years followed by i uh, i would say the um 
the economic issues that, uh, you know, when it comes to natural resources. Uh, so, you know, back in the 1970s, uh, we were all focused on oil and we had the oil, various oil crises that, uh, that occurred in particular, the one that resulted in, you know, everybody shutting down all the uh, petrol or gasoline stations, you know, where people couldn't, uh, couldn't buy gasoline for days on end, or at least in the United States, you know, it was based on, uh, you know, what your number plate, uh, whether it was an even uh, number plate, then you could get gas on even days and an odd plate could get gas on an odd day. Uh, that uh, those kinds of natural resource crises uh, can still play a large role. Uh, and uh, you have, have those issues. Uh, you still have an issue with uh, terrorism. It is not as acute as it was, uh, you know, around uh, two, uh, from, I'd say, 2000 to 2015, 2016. Uh, and then, of course, cyber. Uh, because of the interconnectivity of the world uh, and the dependence that we have on a different, uh, uh, different elements of uh, the Internet infrastructure as it exists today, uh, not only do we use it to survive things like the pandemic, uh, but we also uh, use it in a way that uh, blends the virtual world with the real world. And as you get into the area of artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, it becomes even more important to secure uh, the World Wide Web from, uh, you, know, you don't want to call it unauthorized use because it's supposed to be open to all, but you don't want it to be misused for, you know, for sure. ill-gotten gains. But I would say that... Uh, the most important challenge uh, from the U.S. Uh, standpoint uh, and the U.K. standpoint, I believe, uh, you know, number one is probably climate, uh, but followed very closely uh, by, you know, what happens with uh, the attempts of uh, China to rise to a higher level and Russia uh, to rise to a level that they believe is commensurate with uh, what they believe is their great it's power great status. Taxonomy. I mean, there's the there's the source right there in terms of um, why we should care with the previous answer and this one and how it can affect all of us if that careful balance isn't managed. Isn't it possible that when we think about the layman and, and the definition around international relations is that for the most part, they can't... It does have, an, it does have a clear outcome, but it's not overnight. So with all of the things that we're discussing, um, you know, you could argue that some of the things that covert things that let's say governments and their, you know, uh, spy agencies, you know, the MI5, MI6, you know, the NSA, whatever, CIA, you know, who, who thought people would be literally worried about the scarcity of water and water filtration, but actually it's just, yeah. it, it's a strategic issue. Um, and, mm -hmm. and the same with oil, which gets over the years a lot of the, Good and bad headlines, right? You know, who has right. the best relationship with oil producing countries and how do they influence that relationship and the price of, of crude? Um, the average person uh, may hear this in a movie or whatever, but, but it's just something they can't touch. They can't, they can't really understand or appreciate the importance of it and how that might trickle into a recession if they don't get it right. Exactly, and I mean the the thing that's that's interesting about that, Martin. I think you're you're spot on in in that assessment. Is that you know until it hits you in the pocketbook, until you can't get uh, you know can't fill up your gas tank or your petrol tank and say, uh, you know, okay, uh, I it could go down, you know, go to work or you know go on vacation because I've I've been able to fill up my car. I uh, guess what. 
uh, if you can't do that, that has an immediate impact on on you. Uh, and the the whole movement to alternative energy sources uh, is going to change the equation, but it won't eliminate the equation. There's always going to be some type of dependency that we have to deal with. And you know, like you mentioned, the economic uh, issue of scarcity. You know, it's just it's that's the whole basis of the science of economics is you know how do we deal with scarcity in one form or another and the fact that we can deal with that uh, perhaps in a wiser way uh, is an advantage of modern society as long as we understand what we're dealing with and as long as we don't forget the lessons of the past i think that's what's tricky is i think for your average person you when you can't see it and then it's until it's too late it's hard to and I actually think that's part of the symptom of when we're talking about democracy and asking your average person to make a judgment on things that you can't really fathom. Do you know what I mean? Because it doesn't affect us on a day to day. Like even when you were mentioning China and Russia, these kind of moves for power and just how when everything's operating at the global level. And then when you start to think about just where we it just so much of our resources are used up very quickly and the um it's just very difficult to comprehend from your average person, I think. I think you're, you're absolutely right, Jax. I think the, and the average person has to you know, deal with life. You know, they have to uh, you know, earn enough money to, uh, you know, to get the things that they need. Uh, they, you know, there may be health issues in the family that they're dealing with or with themselves. It's not easy. You know, life is, uh, you know, as, as we all know, uh, life is, uh, you know, can be surprising sometimes. And, and when you look at... Um, the daily concerns that people have, uh, especially if there is a crisis that there, that even a macro crisis that is affecting them, uh, it can be difficult to go beyond, uh, you know, the daily concerns. But the the big issue seems to be, uh, you know, how do you make sure that in spite of the daily concerns, uh, the daily struggles that people have when it comes to to living. Uh, that we uh, that they can go beyond those struggles and and look for not only the good for themselves but ultimately the greater good and what will then benefit future generations and that's it's a really hard ask uh, you know sometimes to do that uh, but uh, you know a lot of the ideologies that have swept the world uh, you know might have some grand ideas but a lot of the foot soldiers that made those ideologies uh, a reality, uh, you know, like in the case of, let's say, the Russian Revolution or, uh, you know, the American Revolution or the Chinese Revolution, um, a lot of the foot soldiers were doing it out of, out of self-interest, yeah. out of economic self-interest. This is, this, is a, this is a great point. We've got to address it uh, because you just nailed it, Cedric, that I, I think we'd all say that, that trade and, and economic is, is big, but the news cycle, it gets dominated by fear um, it you know it's it it's 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 attention mm -hmm. grabbing right and 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 therefore it translates to you know uh, we need to worry about our lives in some way because there's a conflict or there's a war going on or about to start or you know we've not been able to get out of something that could exacerbate and get worse but the one that sits in the middle is the person that's got his hand on the tiller which is the leader if we look back a lot of uh, international relations at the highest level have been down to the will of particular political leaders and their views on, on, on humanity and their views on their own legacy and what they've wanted to achieve. And, and it's been quite dramatic, the impact they've had on a global stage. Legacy. 
Absolutely. Legacy means everything in many respects. You know, if uh, it, it's, uh, it kind of reminds me of a, of a story. Um, so, you know, George Washington's home uh, is Mount Vernon, and it's not far from Washington, D.C., and uh, President, when uh, Trump was president, he visited Mount Vernon and uh, uh, he asked uh, the uh, chief executive of Mount Vernon, he asked him, uh, what, uh, how come George Washington didn't name Mount Vernon after himself? And uh, the chief executive was telling the story to myself and several other people and he said, he turned to President Trump at the time and he said, uh, well, he may not have named Mount Vernon after himself, but he has a whole city and a whole state named after him. And, you know, so you look at the definition of legacy and, you know, Trump looked at legacy as uh, a personal thing. You know, is, in essence, I would say personal aggrandizement of, of one type or another. That's why you have Trump hotels. That's why you have uh, you know, Trump University, Trump Steak, and, you know, those kinds of things, or had them. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, when you look at the question of legacy, it seems to me, you know, as having studied uh, leaders of various types uh, throughout history, the ones that really stand out are either the really evil ones or the really kind and, and good ones. Do you think Brexit is a like a modern version of a self-interested revolution and with Boris leading the charge? You know, that's very interesting. I think that's a great question. I, I think in some ways uh, I, I had a lot of questions about Brexit uh, and, you know, what it would do to uh, the British economy. I, especially, you know, that relationship that they've had with the EU, I mean, a degree of independence where you could still issue the pound, but uh, you had to follow a lot of regulations from Brussels. Um, you know, so, yeah, there, I could see why Brexit occurred. Uh, but then you look at what has happened recently with the vaccine rollout, and you'd have to say uh, that the UK has done a far better job than the European Union oh, yeah. has, and in many ways, in many ways, the UK is fortunate mm -hmm. that they did Brexit. Uh, you know, kind of you know, un, you know, the rule of unforeseen consequences, uh, where you know, vaccine rollout is much, much better in the UK. It, uh, it actually is one of those unforeseen revolutions that uh, um, that you know was, I would say, kind of a uh, a statement uh, that. Britain wants a degree of autonomy, a degree of independence uh, that harkens back to British traditions. Uh, but it also uh, shows that Britain is confident in its own managerial abilities, that they don't want things to be mucked up by you know, somebody else who is not no, no uh, question. necessarily as, as competent you know, as, yeah. as they think they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we've always been mavericks, Cedric. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. Um, and, and confidence. I think most nations, if you'll, you'll find the confident ones amongst every nation, right? But, but, um, yes. but I, I actually think we made a very good calculative bet there. Yeah, I, I think it's worked out that way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have agreed with you, uh, you know, before the pandemic. But uh, you know, seeing what has happened during the pandemic, uh, yeah, I think, I think. This well, I wanted sense. to just quickly hop. But we're going to talk about China and, and, and Russia and a little bit on Afghanistan. But I want to just come back to. I'm going to give you my my own view around the history of leaders and legacy. I'm very interested in your view because you mentioned something to me that I thought was fascinating and that's this, do leaders ultimately recognize and elevate or live up to their sense of obligation, right? There is a, 
there is a prescription, whether it be the U.S. You know, presidency or, the, or, the, or you know, the prime minister's role here of what they should do as leaders. Um, but I think when you start to balance what do they want to achieve within that sense of obligation, they need to have an underlying trait. And my read of, influenced by my, my late father, but my read of history is that the best way to be remembered is to have a great sense, even if you find it, you may not have had it, you may be battling with narcissism, you may be battling if it's with Trump, megalomania, but, but at the heart is you have to show compassion. Compassion to humanity, compassion to society, compassion to life. And, and I think that it goes beyond even narrow words such as kindness, but a compassion for a situation. And I think those leaders ultimately get, get remembered better. I'm just interested in if you were to single out a trait uh, for leaders, uh, particularly political leaders, what would it be for you? You know, I think compassion is an excellent one, Martin. I think um, yeah, maybe a combination of compassion and uh, stick-to-itiveness, I guess, would be, in other words, determination. Uh, determination in the sense that uh, they have certain goals that they have to achieve, and it's a compassion coupled with an ability to get things done and get things done for the right reasons. But uh, I do agree with you that uh, compassion is an integral part of, of leadership. And, uh, and there's, you know, it's, it's just very interesting. You know, like you and, and people who have changed, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Indian leader Ashoka. Uh, and Ashoka was, uh, you know, was one of my heroes actually, because he started out uh, being your prototypical sultan of the area that he controlled, and uh, he would be absolutely evil. He would throw people in prison, have you know them executed on a whim. I uh, and then he finally, I, uh, as I understand the story, he finally went to visit uh, the uh, the prison and saw the horrible conditions uh, that the prisoners were living in. And he then had the chief jailer executed and changed his ways completely uh, and became what was an amazing leader. You know, he became this very just, very kind, uh, very benevolent leader. And, you know, obviously the guy wasn't a Democrat by any stretch of the imagination, but he, uh, you know, he understood his obligation. Uh, and if you have leaders who understand their obligation to a greater good, uh, basically to a, the greater society, uh, they are very different leaders and they have to really understand what that obligation is. They're very different from others. So, you, you know, for example, you take a, a more modern example, you take uh, Churchill and Hitler. I know Churchill uh, he changed his political stripes. He had he had some major failures. I mean, you look at Gallipoli and you know World War One, and uh, you know he did some. If he did something like that, if somebody like me had done something that disastrous, my career would be over. There would be no recovery whatsoever. Uh, luckily, uh, the system that uh, Churchill lived under uh, allowed him to recover uh, sufficiently to assume a leadership role when it really counted. And when he could bring his vast talents and experiences yeah, yeah, to bear, yeah, so for sure. Can uh, we can we talk about China? I would love you to. I was going to say because kick it off, Jax. Uh, yeah, I, w I just I have to know because it's been coming up in the press a lot recently, and you mentioned it earlier about um, China's desire for growth, and 
how we work with that, um, especially with the US and Donald Trump has been focusing on it and Joe Biden similarly and all the Western allies now. And generally, for as long as I know, have been at loggerheads with nations in the East, like Russia and China. Like, why is that? Yeah, so, of course, you know, you can go back uh, to, you know, history and say, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons for this. So let me just summarize it this way by saying China, uh, you know, sees itself not only as a superpower, uh, but historically they've seen themselves as the center of the universe. Uh, the Chinese name for China, Chongguo, is in essence, Middle Kingdom, and they are a, they believe uh, the highest, uh, they have the highest level of culture, uh, their history is, uh, you know, very important to them, uh, they believe that... I they... know what you mean, I was raised to believe that, Yeah, I'm half Chinese, and yes. my mum raised me to believe that um, they have a word for everyone basically everyone who's foreign is a devil that's right it's called, it, the word is guaylo guaylo right exactly yeah and and so you you have that attitude so it's always remarkable to me when i meet somebody from china uh you know generally speaking they're they're well behaved toward me personally uh, and so you wonder okay what are they actually thinking you know as, as we're having these conversations uh but uh, there are it's a narcissism really i think everyone has that uh, narcissism built in like it like british imperialism that's how i see it it's like uh we believe i i don't personally buy into those things but i i that's how i see it it's like a a narcissism that's built into countries oh yeah there's i think you can say that there's a, a definite relationship between narcissism and patriotism it's kind of like the you know the prime version of uh of of narcissism is uh, you know is is something that you could uh, you could definitely extrapolate from that uh, and put that on a national level in the form of either nationalism or you know a, you know, a feeling of uh, ethnic superiority and even ethnocentrism in in that sense so the chinese um have a lot of challenges and what they're looking at is writing the perceived historical wrongs that uh, have occurred to them and in some ways they have a point a very big point uh and you know jacks you probably know from your background uh there are you know you go back to the opium wars for example and the unequal treaties uh china looks at a at what happened to them there as uh, being their version of a of a national catastrophe, and in many ways they're right. You know, you compare the way in which China existed in the 19th and uh, first half of the 20th centuries with what happened with Japan during the same period, and it is very clear uh, that uh, you know J Japan had a much more robust economy. You know, in the run up to World War II, uh, they were developing uh, you know much more quickly. Uh, the Chinese uh, were the victims of uh, old-fashioned thinking, frankly, uh, you know, in terms of whether or not they would catch up with the West. They felt themselves to be uh, superior uh, to Western ways, even if it meant that they didn't have the right weapon systems, for example, or comparable weapon systems to uh, mm -hmm. the forces of uh, either the British or, you know, later on the Americans. Uh, so um, the Chinese are trying to right that wrong. And as they write that wrong, they believe that not only should they achieve parity from a, a military and economic power standpoint, uh, but then uh, they take it a step further. And this is somewhat new because 
when you look at uh, you know what Deng Xiaoping said after after Mao left the scene, and you go into how Deng Xiaoping developed China and uh, it raised its economic level, it started the process of raising its economic level to uh, you know on the road that that we currently have and uh, to the level that we currently have. Um, the the efforts that Deng made were centered on. Uh, you know, securing uh, Chinese, uh, the Chinese people, a degree of economic benefit that they had never experienced before. Uh, and when mm-hmm. you look later on, what Xi Jinping is doing nowadays is he's taking that a step further. Deng Xiaoping wanted to keep uh, China as a, a good regional power, a solid regional power with a solid economic basis. Uh, Xi Jinping is taking that a lot further, and he is saying very clearly that he wants China to dominate the world, whether it's in specific areas like artificial intelligence or in trade. Uh, I mean, you look at the Chinese system and what they've established right now, in essence, what we're seeing is a neo-mercantilist system where they control the means of production uh, anywhere in the world. So if they're importing food, for example, they prefer to import from Chinese farmers in, let's say, Brazil or Zambia, as opposed to uh, native farmers in Brazil or Zambia or you know wherever. So they're doing this. Wow, they're I didn't know control- that. Yeah, it's very in- very interesting. And there's a whole process that the Chinese are going through where they're buying up land, uh, whether it's farmland or mines or uh, timber resources, uh, huge tracts of land in places like Brazil, uh, African countries of, uh, you know, Zambia is one of them, uh, Zimbabwe is another, um, you know, DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, the list goes on because what they're doing is they're securing, uh, in essence, their breadbaskets. Uh, and they want to have uh, a, in order to do that, you also need to secure the lines of trade from those places in Africa or Latin America or even parts of Europe and Asia to China. So the Chinese want to take over the role that the U.S. Navy has played uh, up to this point, and that um, that effort uh, is uh, is one in which the U.S. has, uh, along with its partners like the U.K has controlled what are known as the sea lanes of, uh, of communication, places like the Straits of, uh, you know, Straits of Formuz. Uh, you look at uh, the Straits around uh, Singapore. Uh, you look at the South China Sea. Uh, you look at all those things. And when you look specifically at the South China Sea, the Chinese are going after that particular area, and they want to make sure that that becomes part of, in essence, a maritime exclusion zone that the Chinese have on their southern periphery and that extends south basically along the entire length of Vietnam uh, and the Philippines. So that's that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get as much territory as they possibly can, and they're trying to make sure that nobody can challenge them in these areas. Are we in some form of war right now then with China? It, you know, it, it is, it, that's a really good question, Jax, because uh, it definitely looks different than the Because it sounds Cold like they're War. trying to take over the world. <laughs> well, that's, that's in essence what they've said, uh, that they want to do this at least to the extent uh, that they control all the economic uh, pieces that feed into their economy. You know, all the, all the natural resources, all the 
all the goods, uh, they produce the finished product, then they sell it to the rest of us, and they create a kind of that system where they hold all the debt, uh, and they also have the military power uh, to enforce whatever rules they want to enforce. It is a type of Cold War, uh, it, and it's you know it has its moments. It's definitely not like the the way in which we had the Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, but it is not peace, and that's uh, that can be a very dangerous place. I I think it's worth saying that when we think of war, we think uh, I think the average person would think of it as a military conflict of some kind, but but actually it's mm. not true, right? I mean, so with with political or trade war, uh, it feels to me like the the, the China thing. Uh, you, I'm not saying it's got out of hand, but this idea that they want to control all of the arteries to their to their market it, it you know it to me at, at, at minimum is probably a healthy trade war right i mean because you need that healthy tension in order to create bargaining right. chips on on the global table with other partners right. the question is do we have any evidence or do we think we're seeing that other than what they're saying it could get beyond you know trade sanctions you know, trade negotiations into something that yeah. gets ugly, like like a cyber war, as an example, right? Absolutely. Well, I think the cyber war has basically already started, and there are no real rules, uh, you know, for the cyber, uh, you know, the way in which we're dealing with the uh, the cyber conflict uh, between nations right now. I think that the Biden administration has gotten a lot tougher uh, with them uh, than uh, past administrations have, and uh, Trump uh, tried to be. Uh, a bit harder uh, with the Chinese uh, than uh, um, uh, you know than he was with the Russians, certainly. Uh, but as far as the actual uh, you know cyber piece in particular, that's an easier way for countries to have conflicts with each other uh, because at least theoretically you're not killing people, uh, but what you are doing is you are creating a a situation where. Uh, you get their data. You get the things that you want to get without actually physically having to conquer them. Uh, so what we're seeing is a new form of hybrid warfare uh, that will include the cyber realm. And that inclusion of the cyber realm gives them far more options uh, than they would have otherwise. Uh, they can, uh, you know, they don't have that destruction that you know the wars of old had, you know, where you had the large areas of territory that were uh, completely decimated and, you know, the famine raged and, you know, these things mm -hmm. can still happen, uh, but they won't be as obvious, uh, or at least initially, as, as they were in the past. So the, the cyber element, uh, I think, will be key. And yes, we're already, we're already in a cyber war. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it's, uh, uh, you know, the countries like uh, the U.S. and Britain uh, on one side uh, and China on the other. And then uh, the other uh, extreme, we have the Russians, who are also, of course, engaged in the cyber conflict, uh, you know, quite uh, quite dramatically as as well. Let's give a good trade example of Western brands, uh, you know, leveraging a Chinese market, you know, whether it be Zara, H and M, or these clothing brands, and you know, mm -hmm. the, the, these accusations of slavery in Xinjiang. What do you make of that? And it's really hard. Um, it reminds me of the old outsourcing debate that you know. Or, or, or America first, let's build our products in America. It's really hard when there are such vast disparities between markets and how you can operate. And it seems that China works so well in this. Well, it makes me think about what our contribution to this situation is by doing business there as well. If we're talking about how it affects us. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so the the issue of, uh, you know, firms, of course, look at businesses have long looked at China as being uh, this great market, you know, all these consumers, you know, we're talking 1.4 billion people who are, uh, you know, if you can get them into the middle class and above, uh, they're going to be buying a bunch of H&M clothes and they're going to be walking around in Adidas uh, sneakers and, uh, you know, life will be good because our bank accounts will be really full. Uh, and that's, you know, there's one you know, one aspect to that, which, uh, you know, works. Uh, but the other part of it is, is, of course, uh, you know, it takes a while for a country like China to raise its standard of living. Now, they've done a magnificent job in uh, doing so. I mean, every, sure. every, every observer has to admit that they are, the, the way they are doing this is, is unprecedented. Um, but it comes at a price. And, uh, you know, so you look mm-hmm. at the situation in Xinjiang and firms trying to um, navigate. Uh, you know, on the one hand, they want to make sure that they have access to the Chinese market, and you want to have that flagship store in Beijing or Shanghai, or preferably both. Uh, that's one part of it. But on the other side of it, uh, there is a demand from Western uh, consumers of these of these companies, Western customers, uh, that says, "Hey, you need to have." A, a moral uh, aspect to your business dealings. And if they're using slave labor in Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghurs, uh, I don't want to buy cotton that is made from, from slave labor. I want to have some other, other kind of, um, uh, of, of outlet. I want to be able to uh, you know, make sure it's it's cotton that is produced by legitimate workers who are getting legitimate wages, uh, and so there's this social consciousness. And I think uh, I think the social consciousness part is good. I wish everybody shared that uh, because the you know the exploitation of labor has you know obviously been with us for uh, for millennia. But if you you know if you have that, then of course the Chinese are going to be sensitive to it, and they are going to say, um, hey. Uh, you, you know, you are violating when you interview the Chinese on the street, you know, in front of H&M in Beijing, and they say, oh, they're they're going against China. Any any company that goes against China is a company I will not buy from. And, you know, you hear words like that. Uh, so they've been fed a line. Uh, they are, you know, they're they're holding mm-hmm. uh, fast to the view of, uh, of the Communist Party in China, saying that, uh, you know, anything that goes against China uh, you know, and, and the questions its labor practices and its economic practices is automatically bad. And uh, we see it very differently. And uh, we believe that any exploitation of labor is bad. But isn't that just madness inducing? Because it's like when they say this just doesn't exist. And we look, you look at it, it exists guides, and then they say, well, it doesn't. And because you disagree with us and you're, it's the end of our relationship, it's like you're doing, trying to make an agreement with a child or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in many ways it is. I mean, you, you know, human nature doesn't necessarily change, uh, you know, because you became the foreign minister of a country or because you're an adult, you know, in human nature, sometimes you revert back to, uh, you know, to those childhood type. Uh, type tantrums, uh, which in essence is what they are. And yeah, it it is absolutely maddening. And this is where, you know, that moral compass has to come into play as well. Uh, People, you know, like H&M, you know, Zara, any of the others 
have to be willing to walk away from the table. I, there is a certain goodness that comes from being able to say, you know what? I don't like the way you do business. I don't want to buy something that uh, was produced by what amounts to slave labor. And I'm going to walk away until you reform. Yeah. And if, yeah. if you reform, wow. then I'll come back. Yeah. If you don't like it, I'll go to Vietnam or I'll go to Thailand or I'll, you know, go it's to not Indonesia. China's first kind of lowbrow associations. If we, I remember one of the first places you think of for like knockoffs is China, right? If you, everyone will go to China to get a cheap, fake rolex and fake this and that and the other and they'd be really good and i remember the the age-old trope it's made in the same factory just different it just hasn't got the stamp do you know what i mean exactly rolex without the r right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly exactly and there was the recent lawsuit where bmw took a chinese company to court where they released a car which essentially looked identical to one of the BMWs. So where this issue over intellectual property and China will go on record saying, no, it looks nothing like a BMW. What are you talking about? You know, could they be as profitable as they are now, as rich as they are now, as powerful as they are now, if they hadn't done a lot of this stuff, stolen ideas and taken products from Western inventors and stuff like that? So the answer I think is no. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we, we're trying to, you know, both, the, the U.S. and and Britain are trying to get the Chinese, as well as the European Union, trying to get the Chinese to abide by uh, intellectual property rules, by Western forms of economic and business governance, uh, and uh, that is you know something that can happen, especially as the Chinese develop more and more of their own products and more and more of their own intellectual property. And by own product, I mean things that they not only build but that they design and see through the entire production process, you know, as, as part of uh, part of what they do. But uh, I think that um, when you, uh, you know, when you're trying to get a, a country to abide by the rules, uh, and they will tell you, well, these are rules that we didn't make, uh, then it's going to be a very hard sell uh, to get the Chinese to change their ways. They've profited from doing things the way they're doing them. Uh, you know, in some ways we can probably accept, uh, you know, a few fake Rolexes here and there. Not that I'm advocating that, but, uh, you know, just dealing with the art of the possible. Uh, on the other hand, we want to make sure that they don't, uh, you know, take uh, advantage of us to the extent that we lose not only business, uh, but also potentially our security. And that that is uh, a real tough dynamic. Uh, the Chinese, you know, clearly see things from a different standpoint. Uh, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to outrun the clock. They know that they have demographic issues. They know that uh, they also have political issues and they have to do everything they can to maintain the stability of their system in order to avoid some kind of internal implosion that i think is is definitely possible in a in a country as dynamic and as uh, potentially volatile as i want to i want to just give you guys a a, a a 30 second story in my days when we created a 3d printer we did distribution deals all over the world including china and very hard to get china to to put up money for for, for product up front um, and getting them to abide by intellectual property rules, it, they don't even agree to contracts. You know, they're not worth a lot, right? They're, they're, they're a fascinating culture. But what I found really interesting, having assessed this, because we assessed the threat of our uh, proprietary technology being copied and then being re-landscaped across the world. 
And what history has shown us, and there's some hard research here, is that they're only good at copying products with the influence of the originators. So they can copy stuff, they can build stuff, but what they can't do is, is transfer that successfully back to the world. And if you look at any of the large industries, what they're good at is little knockoffs and those knock. But but they will, Rolex will never become a, 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 a competitor to Rolex, and it didn't happen in my industry. It hasn't happened in automotives. It's fascinating that yes, they can copy, but they've not yet conquered the ultimate thing that they want, and that's get the get the proprietary technology, and you know, and propagate it you know simultaneously or asynchronously across industry. That said. I think Cedric, you've probably got some pretty good views around military, uh, military grade product like like fighter jets or whatever. Right. Well, and look at the education system too. Uh, the Chinese system is based in a large part on rote memorization, uh, and the idea of being creative uh, is something that is yes, of course, there are people who are Chinese who are creative, absolutely, but they have a much harder time. Uh, inventing things, uh, getting things patented, having their own intellectual property, uh, you know, kept safe and not stolen, uh, and that uh, that is a a really a large issue. But yeah, the society is, in my view, uh, you look at the education system, uh, you have a lot of rote memorization. Uh, you look at the culture, a lot of Confucian influences. Uh, Confucian influences focus on obedience and on doing things in a specific mm -hmm. way uh, through many layers of tradition. Uh, and that is antithetical to uh, you know, creating a MacBook uh, or creating an iPhone. Uh, yes, the component parts are absolutely made in China. Uh, but, uh, you know, like Martin said, this is, this is one of those things where uh, you can put it all together uh, and yet the same product uh, is not there. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, while I've never flown a oh Chinese God. fighter jet, obviously, yeah. uh, I would venture the same thing is true <laughs> uh, there. In, you know, in spite of the fact that they have copied the designs uh, for the F-35 and also the F-22, um, the fighters that they have built, uh, to the best of our understanding, are not at the same level no, as their no. Western counterparts. It sounds like they might end up at like a creative revolution at some point. That I think will happen. I think that will actually happen. And that will be very interesting to yeah. see. Well, wow. That, 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 my friend, is a very visionary statement because that's a, there is a lot of correlative effects right now <laughs> that, that would assume with, with what's happening with education in China that they could become incredible product designers over time and you know capitalism is is pretty much there now so it, it you know the idea that they could birth mm -hmm. things as good as you know, other parts of the world is i think an inevitable conclusion at some point but let we we're under some clock pressure i'd love to cover three things if we can one let's talk about russia quickly um and, and we could talk about russia for we could have a whole conversation on russia and perhaps we should but cedric you know a couple of questions putin um is he all cracked up to be what he is? Like, is, is it good or bad? Or is it just, you know, he's an interesting, strong leader uh, that's in, in, you know, imprinted a design for Russia, um, you know, on federalism and, and expanding Russia's influence and perhaps the perception that Russia should have a greater role or perhaps it's still this dominance like China 
Um, what do you make of Russia and the threat of Russia on, on the global landscape, whether it be the US or the rest of the world? So I think Russia is, you know, clearly a power that wants to stay relevant. Uh, you know, unlike China, uh, China has a good shot at becoming, uh, you know, the either a, a peer competitor with the United States or even surpassing the United States in some in some areas. Uh, Russia does not have that chance, but Russia is a master of asymmetric uh, efforts, whether it be asymmetric warfare or asymmetric intelligence operations, which also can be influence operations. And that's what you see Putin doing. Putin, uh, you know, of course, his background being in the intelligence. What do you mean services. by asymmetric? Oh, asymmetric. In other words, uh, you know, traditional military things would be force on force, tanks versus tanks. Uh, instead of that, you have uh, tank versus cyber attack, and that that is what uh, what you're dealing with in very broad terms. Uh, so what they're doing is they're using a simpler, cheaper, but more sophisticated way to get at uh, the U.S. and its partners. Uh, is Putin? you know, a 10 foot tall? No. Uh, is he vulnerable in many areas? Yes. Uh, but he has a vision for Russia. It is a vision that is very similar to, uh, in some ways, what Stalin had. Uh, he looks at what happened, you know, with the fall of communism as being a, quote, great catastrophe, unquote. Uh, but on the other hand, um, he's also borrowed a lot from the czars, you know, from pre-revolutionary Russia in terms of how power should be expanded for the Russians. His problem is he's running against several clocks, and his uh, one of the clocks is demography for Russia. The Russian birth rate is very low uh, compared to the death rate uh, and to other countries. And he's also running against the, his own biological clock in the sense that, uh, you know, at some point he's going to run out of steam, and uh, that will be uh, a problem for, uh, for Russia because he doesn't have a successor who's identified and that exposes the weaknesses of, uh, we'll call it Putinism, although it isn't a real ideology. It's not as robust as, say, communism was or from an ideological sense or, uh, you know, some of the other possible uh, philosophies that could have governed Russia. At that, at is is it worth throwing in there um, or, uh, that Russia's lack of power, particularly at a trade level, is its economic disparity? Like, we don't look at Russia and really think, Jesus Christ, it's third world. This is Africa. Of course it's not. But actually, right. there is a massive economic disparity. You've got the largest geographical country in the world. And what they've been able to do is you know, rape the poor um, and put, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, uh, you know, in this kind of pseudo kind of corrupt economy. And there's just mm -hmm. not a lot of, of prosperity for Russians. And yet their education right. system's okay. No. But just yeah, for a small group. It does a right. Small group it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not trickling right. up. Exactly, and you know that this is the big irony. And it's excellent that you brought up the point of their education system. It is an excellent education system yeah. in in the sense of how they're able to impart uh, technical knowledge, mathematical knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, you know, reasoning. All of those uh, qualities are extremely important to develop a, a modern society. What is interesting is that they have not been able to use that educational advantage uh, to their benefit, uh, except for perhaps the cyber world. You could argue that there the educational system has paid massive dividends because they're employing people with, me uh, with great talent 
uh, in uh, you know in a major way. Uh, but that's only a small, really small segment of the population. So if you want to be somebody in Russia, uh, you better be an oligarch or somebody who has access to the oligarchs. And that disparity between the haves and the have-nots is what did the Russians in in 1917, the Russian czars in 1917, and it's what's going to do Putin and his uh, kleptocracy in as well. Uh, it is not as uh, solid a state structure as the Chinese structure is, and uh, and we have talked about how, how vulnerable China itself is, uh, but Russia is, is even more vulnerable, and uh, you know if Putin disappears from the scene, uh, at some point, uh, there will be some major challenges for Russia and uh, for the countries around Russia because, uh, you know, that kind of uh, a situation with a nuclear power could be very, very And dangerous. what do you make of, obviously, Biden, they've been talking about uh, Afghanistan for ages and, mm-hmm. you know, removing mm-hmm. the troops and, and is our work mm-hmm. done, not done? And d- does that, you know, you know give, give rights to, you know, or further opportunities for the Taliban? And what do you make of it, Cedric? How would you analyze this situation and... and, and America's role. Right. So, Martin, I think that, uh, you know, it is time that we uh, at least called an end to the war. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, 20 years is a long time to be any place. Part of the issue is a semantic issue. Uh, You know, we still have troops in Germany, for example, but we don't call it a war with Germany. Uh, Right. We haven't done so since 1945. And we should have. We've still got troops in Germany. Right. What's their purpose there? Well, their purpose is to be a counterweight, uh, multifaceted, but generally to be a counterweight to Russia right now. And so in some ways it is, uh, and the Germans, you know, want them there. Uh, and in fact, we're increasing our level in Germany by 500 more troops. Uh, so it's not like they're unwelcome. It's, uh, you know, it's a good, uh, you know, for both mm-hmm. countries, it's a good thing. And the other part of it is, of course, uh, you know, in the wake of uh, both World War One and World War Two. Uh, the other European powers uh, wanted, uh, you know, a damper put on uh, potential German ambitions for even further uh, mischief, you know, a la World War II. And that's that's something that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's more of a historical reason, but still a reason for that. So when you, uh, you know, when you look at Afghanistan, uh, I think that I... You know, we should have changed the name once, uh, you know, once uh, bin Laden was killed uh, and declared uh, victory uh, at that point and then said, yeah, we're just here to advise and, you know, hopefully the Afghan government will take care of business like they're supposed to. Uh, I don't think they will. I think there's a lot of, you know, part of the problem is, uh, is endemic corruption. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the gains that we see in terms of rights for women, uh, rights for minorities in, uh, you know, in Afghanistan at this point will probably be uh, curtailed uh, under a an eventual Taliban regime. I personally yeah, would yeah. not like to see the Taliban back in Kabul, but I believe uh, that uh, that is probably what will happen uh, at some point. Um, and that's that is you know bothers me a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, it does not make sense given technology and given uh, the capa- uh, capacities that we have, the capabilities that we have. 
uh, to stay there in a large presence in the form of a large troop presence, uh, you know, beyond uh, beyond this this point. And uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm very concerned that it could still you know come back to be a jumping off point for terrorist forces. Uh, but it it really requires uh, instead of a troop presence there, it requires intelligence. Well, I would call intelligence overwatch, and that means paying attention to the social dynamic uh, of Afghanistan, not just you know who's got how many tanks, uh, but what they're actually thinking. And mm. that's what's really important. Yeah, good point. So you're you're genuinely concerned that in the future, the Taliban regaining power of Afghanistan and they could potentially take revenge uh, for oh. twenty years of occupation. Oh, they will. There's no doubt in my mind yeah. that uh, you know if they do gain control, that they will take revenge. Uh, they're not known for you know their uh, you know twelve step programs of anything. So uh, you know I believe that they're going to uh, going to be a very uh, very tough uh, on their opposition. I don't think they will um, you know treat the government officials of the current Afghan government very well. Uh, and I think that uh, we have to do everything that we can to protect those Afghans who have uh, supported the NATO operations in Afghanistan. We have to protect them, uh, you know, uh, beyond what we would normally do for for people like that. Uh, so it is, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a very difficult time. I don't see very much good coming out of it. Uh, but uh, you know, the Afghan government, on the other hand, the Afghan government has had over a decade. Uh, to prepare themselves uh, for uh, an eventual takeover uh, of, uh, eventual, I should say, eventual departure of the American and NATO. Uh, to forces. me, if I listen to your view, and, and I kind of share a similar view, is, and that's that we've we've got a return to a very strong autocracy. I think of it as like lots of fiefdoms, and a view that um, you know, what what can you expect other than the fact that this could just mm -hmm. become a hotbed for a whole bunch of things from terrorism to to drugs and. Um, mm, to absolutely. humanitarian uh, problems for for the for the people of Afghanistan, and yet what you're actually saying is, you're right with technology and and with uh, you know the military technologies that there are today. It's what you're saying is after 20 years, it's a rethinking of the way we approach Afghanistan, uh, or the way America might approach it, or the way Britain approaches right. it. Right, mm -hmm. absolutely, and you know we have. Um, you know, historically, we've had so little experience in places like Afghanistan. Obviously, that experience level has ramped up quite a bit. Uh, you know, people are more familiar with the culture, with the language, uh, you know, with the politics of uh, uh, the various uh, tribes in Afghanistan and the various regions of Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, it is uh, it is something that uh, it, it's very hard to stay in a place like that forever. And uh, we should have never thought that we could do so, that we were the exception. Uh, you know, this, this sure. is, uh, you know, one of those intractable problems that yep. exists and we have to have to recognize that fact and sure. just deal with that reality. And, and given this is an Anglo-American conversation with an American on one side, a Brit on the other and, 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 and me kind of straddling in both. I'm going to say to you, let, let's leave it on a really positive point and, and tell me why the American-British relationship is so special. Uh, given, I think, for the most part, with our ups and downs, it's been an important relationship it has it has been i think uh, the most important relationship for uh, you know for the us uh, and i think also for britain uh, and uh, i i think that the really important part of that is that we feel comfortable in each other's shoes yeah uh, there's a lot of sympathy in the united states for uh, for britain 
I and, and by sympathy I don't mean pity, but I mean understanding and you know the ability to uh, you know to relate on a cultural level. Uh, the fact that there are so many really strong cultural connections between our countries, yep. uh, you know, like the, the old joke was that we're divided by a common language. Uh, well, I think we're bridging that gap even within that common language. And I, I just, um, you know, so uh, grateful that I've had the experiences that I've had, uh, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic uh, and that, uh, you know, we, we've been able to do some really good things together, whether it was, you know, in the military or, you know, in my, my civilian career. And it's, it's been, uh, it's been a very, uh, very important part of, uh, of what we do. Uh, and it's an important part, I think, of our shared cultural heritage uh, that we can do that. And that's why uh, this bond is, uh, is so critical and so unique. I think with a view of continuing positive trade relations, I'll send you a copy of my music, uh, Cedric, to broker some joy within the, uh, the Pentagon when you're doing your uh, very complex. Perhaps that could um, it could harness lighten some more positive interplay between the world leaders. Yeah, lighten the mood. There you go. You know, next time that you've got quite a tense conversation with China regarding some knockoff uh, Cadillac or something, you're like, guys, just bang on some Jax Jones. We're gonna we're gonna Jack. simmer down. We're gonna simmer down. That's right. Simmer down. You don't listen to Jax. This is the way it's gonna work. <laughs> and you must listen to Jax. Right. So one of my thoughts today is. The process that you went through to get a tattoo because you're tattooed but you're not tattooed enough right right so why why did i get one my thought is not my, i want to i want to take back my thought but my thought for the day for you is why do you wear tattoos and why don't you have more of them is that your are you asking me are you posing me a question yes my answer to that question is is mixed bag i got the tattoo because i was in a rock band at the time and i thought it was complicit with rock Oh, we were really? signed to Atlantic, and I, my bandmate was obsessed with tattoos. And you are who you are around. If you got a tattoo, that's what I'm. No, that as in like you know you become, you know Reverend Run said it. Your network is your net worth, and we were just two broke boys in Brixton <laughs> getting <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> just signed our first record deal. If you encounter any pop star when the records aren't going well, they start getting tattoos. Oh, they've got a, fuck all to do with their time. There's an insight. There's an, that's actually a really good cultural insight yeah, right? yeah. about the music business. Honestly, if you start to see artists start to load up with tattoos because they've got nothing to do. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, in rap culture, it's different, but I see it a lot. Not so that's why I drivers, got these but... tattoos. And then the reason why I ain't got more, I did want more, but then I got married and my wife now owns my body. <laughs> <laughs> she said no more. <laughs> see, I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm allowed tattoos. You are, but, are you allowed tattoos? Yeah, but I don't have the balls to have them because I I'm too eccentric and I changed my mind too quickly. Mm. So I invented men's accessorization of tattoos. I, I know you're obsessed with that left-hand sleeve that you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why are you saying it like that? It's, you know, I, as an eccentric guy, I thought you'd go for a more eccentric tattoo. What, like Black Lives Matters on my chest? <laughs> I was going to do that for the cool. rally. I wanted, to, I wanted to say that I will take off my skin. What, like the two packs? Yeah, that's the, what, across that's, your your yeah, stomach. Black Lives Matter. Yeah. yeah, I came this close, and I thought maybe I'm not that bold. But I was thinking, I was thinking about it. The other one I was thinking about is I like symmetry. And if yeah. you think of my name, MW, it looks like this, and you can't actually see this, but it's a squiggle, right? It's like two moustaches oh, upside down. Right. So this is what I thought: left and right cheek of my ass, MW. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I know what you mean because. 
if I was to get a tattoo, yeah, it would be like more tattoos. I, I'd probably do stuff to take the piss because I don't know this. I don't, when it gets too lofty and try to get too deep with it, it's just like, dude, like, yeah. I'll feel differently in 10 years, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm with you. You know what I love about this particular podcast? Is it feels like National Laughter Day. We don't laugh enough. It's so depressing right I know. now. I know. You know. I'm hungover, to be honest with you. That's probably why I'm getting the best performance from you. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the thought of the day? <laughs>